cold silence that we don't dare speak. There's a wall between us and a river so deep. We keep pretending that there's nothing wrong. There's a cold of silence and it can't go on. I'm Alan Watt, and this is Cutting Through the Matrix on the 14th of January, 2009. For newcomers, we can to CuttingThroughMatrix.com, and you can go through as many of the talks I've given in the past at your leisure. There's lots to choose from, lots of topics, but mainly all dealing with the same big, incredible net that's around the world, this big fishing net that's pulling us all together in a specific direction, a pre-planned goal, in fact, it was determined long ago. And I try to show you how it's done by connecting the foundations and the relationships between the foundations that really suddenly appeared in the 1800s, although some of the members had associations, they called them, prior to that, but all going in the same direction, and how it's affected the whole of the 20th century with all of the planning, the treaties that comes out of the war, the various wars. Wars are very important to them. Because there's a war on humanity, supposedly, to, as they say, save humanity. That's your double think. And you can also look into Alan Watt Sentinel, Sentinel.eu for written transcripts of these talks I've given. And you can print them up. They're written in the various languages of Europe. This incredible topic, as I say, it's, it's our, all, our whole reality. That's the hardest part to grasp, that it's everything that we take for granted, really. We've grown up in a system, and children will accept the system they grow up in, thinking it's quite natural and normal. And all the studies that have been done on mammals show that the young of the mammals will look towards parents to show them signs of agitation or fear, towards other animals or creatures which they might, they might be an enemy of, might be dangerous to them. And if the mammal doesn't know to warn the youngster, the youngster will go right up to its main enemy and probably get eaten. And that's what's happening to us. We have, we don't, our parents were brainwashed before we were born, of course, and they in turn had incredible indoctrination put upon them through the educational system. The educational system can be traced quite far back in most countries. Uh, Gatto has a really good book out on it, on the history of education and what its main purpose initially was. And it wasn't just to turn out good workers, it was also to create a, a peaceful society. And if you go into the writings of other orators, especially of the U.S., you know, like Webster, for instance, a great orator, a uh, great speech writer, he wrote some incredible articles on the purpose of education, and he said that it was to create a particular idealistic type of uh, a citizen. But it didn't stop there. It doesn't just stop us, uh, stop at helping us gain the skills we need to go out into employment. They also had a, a further intention for it. It was to eventually bring us into a controlled society by using the sciences and perhaps because of the sciences, because the scientists at the top, especially those in the fields of what became known as psychology and psychiatry, 
were looking at humanity as a whole and when they first came together and became a more respectable profession uh, before that were speculators really then became a profession from Freud onwards they decided that humanity and the individual within humanity was a wild beast and had to be tamed by scientific methods they claimed that the individual caused the wars which is absolutely crazy because where in the past and monarchs uh, ruled certainly monarchs could take whole nations off to wars and people would obey using tribal instincts but it went much further than that and that's where I'm going to go in this talk and we're back after this break tonight, but it's, it was 40 degrees below Fahrenheit last night, that's what it hit, and it's plummeting that way tonight as well, so it's been a bit of up and down with the old nose and so on, but I've got the fire stoked well with firewood, and it's, it's quite cosy in here. Getting back to the topic of how we're manipulated really, and that's what it's about, uh, long before Freud came along, and Freud himself is an interest in history. And his wife did too. And those various relatives of his were all involved in the same area of mind control in one way or another. Freud's attempts at psychoanalysis were more of a, a method to find out why people behave in certain ways, what motivates them, where Bernays, his nephew, was more involved in applying what was known to control and persuade the masses to behave in a certain way or to buy products even without their knowing why they were doing it. So they were working together, but not just them. There were other relatives that they had, and you can do searches on them. It's quite a fascinating study. You find various groups all coming out of Germany in the same area working on the mind. And it was certainly applied in full, which makes me think that the technique itself was beyond Freud and it was pre-Freud because when Bernays started using these techniques on society it was, it was already a, a known art he came at things from such a weird angle you'd never have guessed how to do it it had to have been debated, discussed and tested long, long before he was born and he must have been taught and trained this so it predates Freud, this, this particular type of science they brought into it other areas too, like mesmerism and self-hypnosis, which tend to go together. And all these modern groups today that promise you wondrous things, if you take their courses, usually use the same techniques, and so do some charismatic Christian organizations as well. As I see, like the ones that have, have the airports, uh, they call the airport convention at Toronto. But then you go even further back and you find in the writings of John Dee that he was doing the same with groups of people when he was calling down spirits, that's a term they gave it, where you'd be full of either the Holy Ghost or a demon or whatever, depends how you look upon it. But people would do the same fantastic things, they'd writhe about on the floor and they'd, they'd, they'd bash their, their feet up and down on the floor and, and do weird kind of gyrations. Same thing you'll see today, this 
form of, of induced hysteria. And that can be done when you offer your mind over to someone who knows how to use techniques. But you have to give your mind to them for the order for them to do it. Therefore, you join these particular groups and they use you. But what about the sciences that affect the whole of society and are completely unaware of? And that's the trick to it. That's the trick. Bernays himself said, if we understand the mechanism and motives of the group mind, the group mind. Now, he got a lot of his study from previous investigators from the 1800s who were into, they called it the crowd, the psychology of the crowd. But he says, if we understand the mechanism and motives of the group mind, is it not possible to control and regiment the masses, regiment the masses, according to our will without their knowing about it? That's what Bernays said. He said it because he knew it could be done. In fact, it already was being done at the beginning of the 1900s. And when you look at the techniques they were using, they were being used in the Western capitalist countries, and eventually they were to be used in the Soviet countries, and they used them, the same techniques in, in a slightly different way. In the Soviet country, they appealed highly to the people's patriotism, and they used massive propaganda. Remember, too, that Bernays himself also wrote a book called Propaganda, and how it could be used to motivate millions of people along the same direction. And in the Soviet Union, it eventually fell apart because there was no reward eventually given to the people. You can keep them going along for so long, working hard for the people, but eventually they realize they're living in a, a poor condition. They're not getting the kind of food they really need to be strong and healthy. But they also see that there's an elite above them going around in the big limousines and chauffeur-driven cars in this great utopia where they're all supposed to be equal and they, they don't work so hard and it gradually trails off when they're not getting the rewards. You'll find just prior to World War II it ties in with all of this. A group came over from Germany. They were, they were really Trotskyites in their belief systems and Theodore Adorno was one of them sometimes they call themselves the dispossessed this particular group or club and they came over to the west mainly to America and Britain and they worked to study the American culture and set up because they were so astonished to see a similar thing to the Soviet Union being established in, the America, in America in the USA without that kind of propaganda because it was being used through people's purchasing abilities. If you alter the purchasing uh, techniques and aim at the consumer using consumer methods you completely alter the culture. And you realized that the power techniques were actually stronger in the West and they set up a foundation to use and manipulate that whole culture. If you study the Soviet system again, they had many wars and takeovers of countries under the guise of peace. They always said it was to create world peace. If you went into many of the definitions of peace, they tend to come down to the same one. 
and peace was described as being the, or defined as being the absence of all opposition. And then that, the various peace movements. In the Western countries, we see our own governments occupying countries under the guise of peace. They're going to pacify them to pacify the world. We see our own countries at the same time being turned into concentration camps under the same world system that's going to give us such incredible peace. So there are many ways to bring about, by using the same techniques in a Soviet country or in a Western capitalist country, you can bring them together along the same path by using the same techniques because they're based on sciences which control the masses without the masses even being aware of it. They go for your emotions primarily, not on logic or reasoning. And in fact, what they said at the World Psychiatric Association many years ago and reiterated by many psychiatrists since, even Ewan Cameron, who did the MK Ultra experiments, he believed in this and he stated the same thing, that the individual was a dangerous animal and therefore he had to be tamed and that psychiatrists and psychologists should be given the right to dictate what kind of society, being the only intelligent, rational beings, they were the only ones who should have the right to dictate what kind of society should come into being. And also they wanted incredible power over the schools, over the minds of children and adults, and governments and politics themselves. They wanted psychiatrists on every parliament and congress. When you look at what's happened, and we always find things out after the fact, which is an astonishing thing for someone waking up. They, they start to think, what on earth has happened today? And then they, they find out, no, this has been going on for quite a long time. And then they go even further back, and they realize they've lived through a whole, a whole phase of change that they themselves were unaware of because it's been done so slickly, so scientifically, that they had no clue they themselves and their behavior was being altered along a certain path. Even the, even with the topics that filled their minds and they talked about with each other were all given to them by specialists. As I say, these are old sciences. There's not much being given out really into the public about the, the, the nuts and bolts techniques of, the, of how to use it it's very hard to get those kind of books, but those in top marketing companies do have access to them, and they are proven sciences. They do work. They have worked on society. I grew through and grew up through an era of massive change where people thought they were rebelling. And then I realized they were all starting to wear the same kinds of clothes, like, like outfits, jeans, blue jeans. And the older ones had uh, fringes and jackets like this well that was all made by the fashion industry and it was promoted to them through advertising be different, dress like this until they all look the same when you look at the Club of Rome that also believes in this this what well, this is a fact that the human being is too irrational to be left to themselves. It must be controlled and directed and altered if need be. They do have some truths 
some truths. They did say, for instance, one of the truths being that when they looked around the world in the 1970s, there were so many conflicting groups across the planet all fighting with each other and arguing with each other that it would be impossible to have peace at all. And they also said the more powerful the various groups become, the more aggressive they would become. There's a truth in there. There definitely is a truth in there. However, we should always look into see who starts up these groups as well and has them battling each other for the desired outcome of synthesis. Back with more after the following break. Medical School in San Francisco in 1961. 
which is there will be in the next generation or so a pharmacological method of making people love their servitude and producing dictatorship without tears, so to speak, producing a kind of painless concentration camp for entire societies so that people will in fact have their liberties taken away from them but will rather enjoy it because it will be distracted from any desire to rebel by propaganda or brainwashing. It says, or brainwashing enhanced by pharmacological methods. And this seems to be the final revolution. So they called it the final revolution. All the other revolutions have been won. And there have been many revolutions. Some bloodless. Mainly through cultural changes and so on. Other ones were, were very bloody indeed. But the final one was to control and tame humans altogether. Now you can only do that with predictability of people, of everyone. And we're living through a phase now under the guise of terrorism to have everyone's data collected, and it has been for years actually. All the communications, I've read the reports from mainstream newspapers and even from military sites where they have a, literally a, a sort of clone of you a cyber clone of you in cyberspace in a computer with all your habits they even have your friends that you talk to on your cell phones in the same simulations to see if you are as predictable as they think you are by knowing all your habits and likes, dislikes and so on to have a world peace to peace in society everyone must be 100% predictable by the authorities ties in again with the hidden persuaders by Vance Packard who says on page 206 eventually say by AD 2000 perhaps all this depth manipulation of the psychological variety will seem amusingly old fashioned but that by then perhaps the biophysicists will take over with biocontrol which is in-depth persuasion carried in its ultimate Biocontrol is the new science of controlling mental processes, emotional reactions, and sense perceptions by bioelectrical signals. Bioelectrical signals. Now, this was done in the 50s, this book, and then jumped forward to the 70s when Zygmunt Brzezinski brought out his book, The Technotronic, with the, with the, Between Two Ages, with the chapter The Technotronic Era in it. We said the same thing through technotronics, as he called it. You could control whole societies. To continue with the Vance Packers one, it says, the National Electronics Conference meeting in Chicago in 1956 had electrical engineer Curtis R. Schaefer of the Norden Katy Corporation explored the startling possibilities of biocontrol as he envisaged it. Electronics could take over the control of unruly humans. This could save the indoctrinations, or not doctrinators, and thought controllers a lot of fuss and bother. It made it sound relatively simple. Back with more after these messages. You're listening to the Republic Broadcasting Network. Because you can handle the truth.
Dan Allen Watson were cutting to the matrix. Just before the break, reading from Vance Packer's book, Hidden Persuaders, I was mentioning biocontrol. This biocontrol is new science of controlling mental processes, emotional reactions, and sense perceptions by bioelectric signals. The National Electronics Conference meeting in Chicago on 56 had electrical engineer Curtis R. Schaefer of the Northern Kitay Corporation explore the starting possibilities of biocontrol. As he envisaged it, envisaged it, the electronics could take over the control of unruly humans. This could save the indoctrinators and thought controllers a lot of fuss and bother. He made it sound relatively simple. This is in the 50s. Planes, missiles, and machine tools are already guided by electronics, and the human brain being essentially a digital computer, digital computer can be too. Already, through biocontrol, scientists have changed people's sense of balance. And they have made animals with full bellies feel hunger and made them fearful when they have nothing to fear. Time magazine quoted him as explaining, the ultimate achievement of biocontrol may be the control of man himself. The controlled subjects would never be permitted to think as individuals. A few months after birth, a surgeon would equip each child with a socket mounted under the scalp and electrodes reaching selected areas of brain tissue the child's sensory perceptions and muscular activity could be either modified or completely controlled by bioelectric signals radiating, radiating from state-controlled state-controlled transmitters. It's like the Matrix movie, isn't it? This in the 50s. He added the reassuring thought that the electrodes cause no discomfort. This won't know that you are you. I'm sure that the psycho-persuaders of today would be appalled at the prospect of such indignity being committed on man. They're mostly decent, likable people, products of a relentless progressive era. Most of them would want to control us just a little bit in order to sell us some product we may find useful or disseminate with us a viewpoint that may be entirely worthy. But when you are manipulating, where do you stop? Who's to fix the point at which the manipulative attempts become socially undesirable? And that is the big problem, isn't it? That is the big problem. After 9-11, when they asked everyone to give up their, their security for peace, it came once again to the table, how much freedom do you give the average person and still have safety for the state, for the system itself? A law always come up. Well, the answer is, they can't trust man at all. When you read their other writings, they cannot trust man whatsoever. They make it quite categorically clear that they don't trust the average human being or too primitive, too unreasoning, or unthinking. And we live on emotion rather than logic or reason. When people have studied all of the TV, and TV definitely was a great tool, still is a fantastic tool, to manipulate people with, but they also do studies on people who watch television. They have all along. And they were, they were fascinated by those that love soaps. Soaps are full of what Freud would call the sexual, the hidden uh, dogmas of sex, all the, the different frustrations and so on that are under the surface. So they let it go in the soaps. You play out the fantasy in the soap. But they wanted also to see if they could actually make people actually portray it in real life and there was copy of what they were seeing and bring it into their own existences and had questionnaires about this too to see how it was affecting them so we are affected by what we see 
As Skinner said, if you want to modify behavior, you alter the environment of your target. You put in a television set. That's what you do. You alter the environment. They'll alter their behavior. You can do it with a radio. As Tavistock found out very early on too, when they, they used to try the serials, the continuous serials, where at the end of each hour, the person was left on a, on a cliffhanger, and you weren't sure if they were going to come through this or they'd die, and people literally would run home to hear the next episode. So their behavior was modified. They changed their daily behavior. Very simple stuff in that respect. The Hidden Persuaders goes on in the core and feeding of positive thinkers, or the care and feeding of positive thinkers. On page 194, it says, winning the public's collective mind over confidence is a monumental task. Over two confidence is a monumental task. Yet industry leaders seem to be succeeding. That was in Tide magazine. Back in the 1920s, Americans across the land were chanting or chatting, ten or chanting, yeah, they were chanting, not chatting, ten times a day, the light is bad in here. It says here, every day in every way I'm getting better and better. Remember the old saying? They're applying to their problems the formula for self-mastery through conscious auto-suggestion devised by French druggist psychologist Emile Cuey. Gradually this formula became pretty well discredited as a way of coping with their basic problems. By 1956, Cueyism seemed to be enjoying a hearty revival, particularly in the highest circles of business and government. In almost every day's newspaper, some tycoon was announcing vast expansion plans or unlimited faith in the culture or the future. Economists in the employment of industry were making reassuring pronouncements that our economy was rock solid despite the monumentous growth of unpaid consumer debts. Business Week in March 56 was exulting over the fact that Confidence is high. A new wave of confidence is sweeping the business community. A week later, another journal widely read by businessmen was exclaiming happily over the fact that all the important indices were going up, up, up. Its subheads were enter optimism and exit fear. While such happy exclamations were filling the air in late 1955 and early 56, Tide explained to any merchandisers who might still be in the dark what was behind it all much of this exuberant chest beating, it said, was carefully calculated psychology devised by, by professional persuaders. The journal even coined the phrase psychological marketing to describe this new marketing technique, which it said was geared to meet the special needs of the psychological age in which we live. You see examples of it every day, it continued. Just recently, there were announcements of huge jet plane orders indicating confidence in the travel market in the next decade. There are other ones like Harlow Curtis's billion-dollar bet. Other leaders in business, industry, and finance speak out week after week, expressing their faith in the economy. Ottomen talk of the 10 million car year just around the corner. Steelmakers talk expansion and more expansion. There are other less dramatic examples. The releases on expansion plans, the speeches to local groups, even the talk across lunchtime tables is, is all about expansion. Then it explained what it was all about, what was taking place. These men aren't talking just to hear their voices, nor do they enjoy venturing out on the economic limb. 
Their main aim is to beef up the confidence level of the nation by counteracting pessimism that sometimes gets voiced so that dealers will keep on ordering goods and consumers will keep on buying goods at a higher and higher rate and, if necessary, go into debt to do it. To maintain a pace of increasing consumption is asserted, a higher level of credit buying must be maintained as well. There must be a continued willingness to expand. Such a willingness to expand, industrial thinkers had concluded, rested on confidence. Confidence in spending are handmaidens of an expanding economy, Tide stated. From a persuasion standpoint, this matter of confidence transcended anything else. The minute a glow of confidence left the landscape, all sorts of disagreeable things might happen. One thing that would surely happen would be that people might start watching their, their dollars and become more cerebral in their buying. That would make things difficult all over for depth merchandisers trying to tempt people into impulsive buying. Status symbol buying, leisure buying, and many other kinds of self-indulgent buying. Dr. Dichter was most emphatic on the hazard involved if confidence was not kept at a high level. Now listen to this. You see, you can go through a lot of boring books, and it's, it's just here and near you, you find the jam. Dr. Dichter was more, most emphatic on the hazard involved if confidence was not kept at a high level. Our prosperity is based on psychological foundations, he warned. Not of real foundations, psychological foundations. And added that economists and business leaders who predict any dip in business are playing with fire and doing a disservice to the country. Now, what did you think economists were there for? What did I think they were there for? To do a science that was supposedly fairly exact. But here's Dr. Dichter saying, our prosperity is based on psychological foundations. He warned and added that economists and business leaders who, who predict any dip in any bad news, in other words, in business, are playing with fire and doing a disservice to the country. What was the evidence that confidence was crucial? Merchandisers were strongly influenced by the finding of the Survey Research Center psychologists at the University of Michigan who kept a running chart on the buying mood of the United States public for the Federal Reserve Board. These probers found that there is such a thing as a national buying mood and were reported as being convinced that a generally cheerful atmosphere, more than any rational calculation, seems to make people feel like spending their money. Now what it's actually saying here, Dichter is basically saying it's heresy to give the public bad news because they'll stop buying. Now that's been known all along in this field, in economics. And they're always trying to push the good news. Is that the reason they don't tell us the truth? But think about the opposite of it. When they brought the, the present crunch on, this financial crunch, which was on the go all along, because basically the stock market was full of Ponzi schemes. It, in fact, it's all a Ponzi scheme. It's a pyramid scheme. It depends on new investors coming in all the time and older ones leaving their money in. That's how it's run. When this supposed financial crash came, it came from the top. The president himself scared the Jesus out of the general public with his gloom and doom of, of crashing. Or crashing. It could be worse than the Great Depression. Which tells you that this was another must-be. And it's only when you go into the other books to find the whole question of money is to change. The whole purpose of money is to change. 
into a new society, a new economic society. The first part being Britain, the, the Britain's Wood Agreement, part one. Where, where the, the founder himself, the chairman, the guy who run it, said that this is only one part of a phase. Well, Mr. Bush was given the nod to start the next part of the phase. And it's being carried out right now. We're going to go into a new economic system. If they wanted to go along with the religion of always saying, rah, 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 the economy is great, the people would be spending, spending, spending. Regardless of reality. So to say, that was a must be. You should go into the writings put out by the foundations that studied this, like I say, especially the ones like like the, the great foundation that was set up by oh, the, the Trotskyites who came across to the US and Britain. Because they were fascinated to realize that these social psychologists at the top, these business psychologists, were running the country through their ability to correct the consumer and get the consumer to change their ways and their values and all the rest of it. Right down to, say, in, in like a chapter in that particular book, Bitten Persuaders, the feminization of the male. The men at one time generally never bought their own clothes. They didn't care what they wore. Fashion was an alien thing to them. They'd have one or two pair of shoes or a pair of boots, a pair of baggy pants, a jacket, and maybe a suit for a funeral. And that was about it. That's all, but as far as they cared about. But because the women did the purchasing, they aimed at advertising mainly at the woman. And it became very successful. Because then you could work on the woman and say, through the advertising, does this look like your husband? And you see the smartly dressed guy, slim and probably younger, dressed in a flashy outfit, looking very trendy. And they'd say, this is the new successful man. And she would look at her husband and realize that there's old Joe wearing his old clothes. Probably quite happy. And she would start to change him because she was doing the purchasing. Now they don't need that. They, they, they have the men doing it themselves. It's rather astonishing, as I say, to read articles going back so many years and, and with this book and others, to do with the drugging of society, big pharma coming in to gain control over society, then so many things make sense to you, suddenly make sense to you. When they started to drug the children with Ritalin and all the other spin-offs of Ritalin, it all suddenly makes sense. They wanted to bring pharmacology right into the classroom, which they did sit down. It won't be enough to stop there because they're going to go an awful lot further, an awful lot further. They generally bypass the older generations and go straight for the youth. And it's true enough for anybody under 30, because you're still very programmable up to the age of 30. Uh, anybody above 30, they just forget you'll die off. You, you're just working towards your pension, in fact. And you hope to be a good boy and get it and cause no ruffles. article here it's called 2020 and I think it's from the TES 
Ministers Educational Supplement on 8th of June 2007 by Irina Barker. It says here, 2020, dawn of the intelligent classroom. You notice there's a whole bunch of programs now called 2020 when they want to integrate even cybernetics with humans and chips and all the rest of it. It says here, it is the exam time in the year 2020 and pupils are feeling tense. Suddenly gentle music starts to play, the corridors fill with a soft blue light and a soothing breeze blows through the classrooms. In another part of the school, a geography teacher creates a jungle in the classroom complete with steam, heat and smells. Elsewhere, a history teacher recreates the freezing conditions of the siege of Leningrad. Intelligent school buildings which respond to people's moods are just one of the predictions made in the future report by Future Lab, the Bristol Education Research Centre. They predict in 13 years' time, 13 years' time, peoples will have 24-hour access to a new kind of wireless network, incorporating the internet, television and telephone through tiny devices in the fabric of their clothes. Peoples will, they've already, they've already done that in some schools in Britain which I've read in the past on air. <clears throat> Peoples will be able to look back at lessons at any time via special glasses which will record their whole lives, creating a reliable virtual memory. Well, you'll bet the authorities will be watching their whole lives and using this memory from their glasses. Haha, <laughs> it's going to be a chip, I know. Back with more after this break. I'm Alan Watt, and this is Cutting Through the Matrix, going through the types of controls that are coming up and actually being installed right now in various schools in some countries. It says here, security in schools will change two advanced biometric full-body scanning systems embedded in doorways could allow pupils and staff access to different rooms without the need for keys, passwords, or retinal scans, and the system would refuse access to criminals and excluded pupils. Well, see, they're training a young group to come into a world without, they're always going to go through these incredible types of security and scrutiny with no privacy whatsoever. That's the whole point of the training, to get you used to the fact of having and not minding not having privacy. This is what Huxley was talking about, how people will love their servitude. Kerry Facer, the research director at Future Lab, said technology would become so embedded in closed everyday objects in, in schools that it would become harder to see where the child ends and the technology begins as it's interfacing, interfacing with technology. I think they're taking, they're taking us all through. She says there's a huge ethical debate that we need to have now about the potential effects of the surveillance on personal privacy. Well, do we have any, do, do the public have any input on this? Are they asked? Have they even asked what they think? And of course, that, the answer is no. Will we assume it is normal for pupils to be tracked and monitored throughout the day? Well, in some schools, they already are. I've read those articles before, too. High-tech changes in schools would also pose questions about what pupils should learn in the classroom and how they should be assessed, assessed if information recalled were to become redundant. The focus on the three R's could shift, for example, if the written word lost prominence in favor of audio and voice recognition technologies. They're already using some of this uh, audio and voice recognition technology to get through into schools, through the gates. That's from 2020 and beyond. 
several of future labs predictions are already, already becoming true. Intelligent buildings. Now that's already in. There's articles out there on intelligent buildings. Green End primarily in Manchester became the first UK school to install computer-controlled intelligent lighting that responds to people's biorhythms. There's classroom simulations. There's also a testbed classroom at Grey Court School in Surrey, which allows teachers to vary environments using surround sound and projection screens. But it doesn't mention here is they're also putting cameras above the students, each, each student, and they're also uh, putting recorders in so you can study the, the blinks even from your eye to see how you're responding to certain subjects and so on. Observation and psychology. We're all specimens in a great laboratory. And we don't even know it. There's articles that came out of Vance Packer's book. There's been documentaries done showing you about these tiny little fisheye cameras that have been used all through supermarkets, which for decades have studied the blickers, the, the flickers and the, the size of the pupils of the people looking at the different items on the shelves and the people are utterly unconscious of them and here you are being studied like a specimen because you are the prey of big business obviously getting back to this article here though it says lessons in virtual worlds they're going to have them in virtual worlds that's already here to an extent they want to add presence to it so you'll think you're actually in a room with people It makes you wonder why you have a body at all eventually. Maybe we won't. Well, that's it for tonight from a very, very cold interior Canada where it's getting down to 40 below Fahrenheit. From Hamish myself, it's good night and may your God or your gods go with you.